We serve a living God, everybody. You may have a seat. A living God who is active and at work. And I know that some of us squeal into church because it's the thing we do on Sundays, but there is an expectation that God will work. Is there not? I certainly expect Him to work. Um, And I know that He's, I know that He's speaking. And so we're going to take some more time in a bit. Uh, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to continue to worship and continue to open up space just to receive from God this morning. But first, we're going to open up God's Word um, and see what He has to show us. Um, before I get into it, four years ago, a group of us, uh, a, group, a few of us here from this church, um, led by the boundless Dave Preciato. Where is Dave? David, where are you in here? Not here. Maybe he's enjoying his Labor Day weekend. That's great. Uh, uh, there he is. There he is. All right. About a few of us from this church um, decided we're going to hike what is known as the Presidential Traverse up in New Hampshire. Now, if you don't know it, it's a roughly 23-mile trek um, over about seven different peaks in the White Mountains, including Mount Washington herself. And it comes with like, what, like 9,000 feet elevation gain total, something, something measly like that. Um, and so we decided we we're going to take about two days and we're going to backpack over them. And admittedly, this was the most strenuous thing I had ever signed up to do. All right, so, but going into it, thankfully, we had a few months to prepare. So I got my gear, my pack, my food, sleeping bag, crammed it all in there, did a lot of planning. And I did some training, but I thought, man, I've hiked before. Like, well, like, this is, we, I can do this. I can do this, but this was new. This, this was new. And so day came, packed up all our gear, drove up, camped overnight, got up early the next morning, got to the trailhead, and here is a picture of my uh, very excited self getting ready to go. I call this the before picture. I don't want to show you the after picture. <laughs> But this is, this is right before we get on the trail to head up to the first peak, which was Mount Madison. And man, I'm feeling good right here. I'm feeling really good. I'm, I'm, and we start on that trail. I'm thinking, this is just spectacular. I mean, look at the beauty of all that God has made. We're out in the fresh air. <sighs> right? But then fast forward 30 minutes after this picture and roughly 2,000 feet elevation gain. Like my shirt is drenched, like white sunscreen is melting down my face, my thighs are on fire. Dave and some others are looking at me and saying, dude, you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. (laughs) Totally fine. But of course, internally I'm thinking, man, can I do this? Is this even possible? Because at the start I had all the optimism in in the world, but once the climbs got steep, then came the pain. And after the pain came the doubt. And after the doubt, all of a sudden, things didn't look so beautiful anymore. Why? Not because I I, I didn't look the part. Like, I had the gear on the outside. I had what was going on. But the reason was because I I was not internally ready. I was not internally conditioned for for the journey that was ahead of me. I struggled to breathe. My muscles were sore. My mind began to doubt. I was not internally prepared. And there are many mountains to climb in this life. Many mountains we cannot avoid. 
Maybe for you, it's been an uphill battle with mental illness or anxiety. Maybe for you, it's been a slog trying to find a place where you belong, solid friendships. Maybe you began your marriage with optimism, but now you're at a place where you're struggling to breathe. Maybe you started off in life, you know, gung-ho because you were going to make a difference in this world with your career or in your family or some other social space, but now you're just struggling to keep going. And perhaps you started in and you did have all the gear. You read the books. You know the Bible verses. You've been to the seminars. Like you looked the part on the outside, but you are struggling to keep going. I've been there. I've been there. And it, we can't avoid the pain that comes in life. Right? Life is going to come with pain. And even if we have all the right answers, is that internal part of us prepared? Are we prepared internally for what is ahead? In other words, I'm not talking about like physical conditioning, but is your inner self, your spirit that part of you that is connected with God, is it gasping for air? Because we cannot climb the mountains in front of us without a healthy inner connection with God through Christ. So how do we develop that? Well, we're getting back in the book of Daniel today. And as you've noticed in earlier chapters, Daniel had plenty of mountains himself to climb, did he not? And as a faithful Jewish man in a Babylonian and later Persian climate, that didn't exactly make it easier either. Yet we find that he was a man who didn't only have strength, but he seemed to thrive even up into his early 80s. So teach us, Daniel, how did you do it? And in chapter 9, he gives us an inside look into his prayer life. And if you read back over the first eight chapters, you see that prayer marked who Daniel was. That he was a man who found his inner strength from just that. This deep inner connection with his God through prayer. That talking with God, hearing from God, was like the breath that provided the oxygen for him to keep going. And if you're someone who struggles to stay consistent in prayer, or if prayer has felt more like a chore than a joy, or if you're confused onto what prayer is even supposed to look like, then let's turn together to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. And as we do, we're going to see first, where did Daniel's prayer begin? What was his prayer rooted in? And then second, how can prayer, how can God use that to renew us? And last, as we pray, what can we expect God to do? And before we get in, let's start, of course, with prayer. All right? So if you bow your heads with me. God, you are faithful. You are good. You are just. You are clear. You are truth. You are always honest. You never lie. You never manipulate. You are love. And so, Lord, we just say, come, do what you want to do in our hearts and our lives. God, I'm sorry for the amount of times that I have placed prayer or time with you as, as a second or third priority in my life. And I've tried to handle things on my own. 
But Lord, given that, I, I pray that you teach me and teach us again how to come to you so that you might strengthen us in our inner being by your spirit as we connect with you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. amen. So it's more than fair to say that if it wasn't for Daniel's prayer life, I don't think he would have made it. Right? As a Jewish man in Babylonian culture, later Persian culture, prayer provided the oxygen that strengthened and conditioned his soul. And that is the same thing, the same thing is true for us in our climate, in our culture, no matter what we're facing in our day. So, the, okay, then the next question is, well, what kind of prayer are you talking about? Like, what, 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 is, what does this mean? You may be thinking, oh, I pray, but I don't know, it just feels weak or it feels rote sometimes. And if we want a vibrant prayer life, where does it begin? Where does Daniel begin? Well, let's start here. That our prayers pack divine power when they're a response to what God said and who God is. Let me say that again. Prayers pack divine power when they're a response to what God said and who God is. So let's get in to, to, to Daniel's prayer life. Daniel 9 Again, he's in his early 80s, roughly. And even though his physical body, I'm assuming, is pretty frail, his inner life is like an Olympian. <laughs> because he's had countless reps of prayer over many mountains. So let's set the scene first. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. To understand what's going on, and then we'll look at his prayer here in a moment. So Daniel 9 starts with, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign. Pause there. So this is roughly year 538 B.C. All right? In 539 B.C., that is when the Persians came in and, and took over Babylon under Darius and others. This is now roughly 66, 67 years after Daniel was taken from Jerusalem as a teenage boy. All right, so we understand the timeline a little bit better. So then, verse 2, continue. He says, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. All right, let's, let's see what's going on. See, Daniel's about to pray. But before Daniel opens his mouth to pray, notice what fuels him. Daniel chapter 9 verse 2 says that it was the word of the Lord given to him through the prophet Jeremiah. Now to understand that, we need a little backdrop as to what's going on in Daniel's mind. We need a little more context. Because again, Jerusalem, at this point, 538 B.C., it had been about 66, 67 years since Jerusalem was conquered. All right, so 538 B.C., I'm going to act like I'm a human timeline, if that's all right with you guys. I'm not sure it'll be accurate, but like I'm currently standing at 538 B.C. All right, 67, 68 years before, it was about 605 B.C., that's when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. Now, why? Well, to get that, we need to go way back in the timeline. <laughs> all right, it could be back out that door for all I know. But this is way, sorry camera guys back there. But this is, this is way back when, when God delivered his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. 
He brought them out of Egypt, and then he brought them to the wilderness, where he formed a special relationship with them called a covenant. And in that covenant, he says, you're going to be my people. He says, but a part of that covenant is you're also going to obey my laws, live the way that I'm calling you to live with my laws and my commandments. If you do, you're going to experience tremendous blessing from me. But if you don't, you're going to experience judgment ultimately. Well, as many of you know the story, as that timeline continued, God's people continued to disobey, reject God. He showed them mercy, grace. They continued to disobey. Like, it's almost like their hearts couldn't obey. It's like more and more they, they turned from God and they started serving other gods until finally it got to the day. Back to 605, where am I? 605 B.C. when there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah spoke to God's people saying, this whole country, meaning Israel, will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he told them, even before it happened, he says, this is what's going to go down because of your sin against God. He says, when those 70 years are completed, God says, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. And see, Daniel with his eyes in God's word, reading God's promises. He is now standing at this moment in history that is 67, 66 years after that moment, and he's looking at this promise of God, and he's saying, God, I take you at your word, that what you've said, I believe. And that is the very thing that sparks his prayer, is the promises of God. What Daniel doesn't yet know is he's a matter of weeks away from, maybe months, from Darius issuing a decree that's allowing the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem again in fulfillment of God's promise. He doesn't know that, but he doesn't need to know that because he has faith in what God said. And when we pray with faith in God's word, we can be certain he hears and will answer us. God promised 70 years in exile for their sin, and Daniel took him at his word. I have three kids who have no problem keeping me, holding me to my word. All right, Dad, can we go to the pool? Ah, sunscreen, bathing suits. Dad, you said last Tuesday at 3.56 p.m., right before dinner, that you were going to take us to the pool today. Got me, right? Got me. And if my kids have no problem holding me to my word, and I often change my mind, how much more can we trust in what our unchanging God promised in his word? But here's the thing we see about Daniel is is our confidence is not only in what God says he'll do, but we can also place our confidence in who God says he is. And let that be the spark for our prayer. Did How did, in Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, how does he start that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why does he start that way? Because he wants us to begin by keeping our eyes on who our God is. Letting that be the thing that fuels our faith as we begin to pray. So now let's pay close attention to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 4. And we'll just read to verse 14 for now. As we read it, notice how Daniel appeals to who God is. See see if you notice that. 
All right, chapter 9, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, notice, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. There it is, naming who he is. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving. There he is, naming who God is. Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord, our God, or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, as I explained earlier, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. We have fulfilled the words you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem, just as it is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster came on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The, the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God, here it is again, is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. Do you see? I'll get to the rest of that prayer in a moment. But did you notice as we read it just then how he consistently appeals to who God is? Because if we don't know who God is, all we're going to see is the mountain instead of God. And we often lose motivation to pray because we believe the mountain in front of us is either too difficult for God or all we can see is the mountain instead of God. So when you pray, wherever and however you do, I encourage you to begin just by naming, even thanking God for who he is in his word. You know, I've been trying that lately. When I encounter different struggles and challenges or things that I don't know what to do. Starting to name the very character of God that I know in his word. And I tell you, I'm not making this up. I feel that inner strength and faith begin to build in me. Because oftentimes what we call prayer, or what I've called prayer, is really just worrying in God's direction. <laughs> right? Just trying to, just all my stuff, just throwing it on him. So it's no wonder that we lose motivation to pray. But as Daniel prayed for God to do the seemingly impossible, which was to restore the people to Jerusalem and forgive their sin, he's constantly appealing to who God is. And so my question for you is whatever mountain you're looking at, who is God? Who is God? What is the character of God that speaks directly to what you're facing? Because as we take in who God is and what he said, we are breathing in the oxygen of faith before we breathe out our prayers to him. It is strengthening, conditioning our soul. You guys see that? You tracking with me? All right. But let me clarify something else about prayer. And this is key. Because what does prayer change exactly? I mean, that's kind of a loaded question. 
I'm sure a lot of theologians have spilled a ton of ink on that very question. What does prayer change exactly? And we see that when we pray, there are times when God answers our prayers in the way or in the timing that we hope. But I've noticed whether God answers it exactly as I want or not, that always prayer is meant to be something that changes us. And Daniel knew this. Daniel knew prayer is not just about us getting our way or getting God to do what we want, but it's surrendering to God so that he can change us. Because here's the thing, when we start by naming and, and recognizing who God is, the next step is to realize that we're not that. We're not God. In fact, we fall way short of that. And this is Daniel's confession throughout this prayer When he says things like, in verses 4 and 5, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. That's who God is. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. God has only been faithful and in love to us. But we have said, God, I'm going to do what I want. (laughs) Yet even when we do wrong, Daniel says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. That he has been patient, slow to anger, but yet we've been the people who hold grudges, gossip, use others for our own benefit. And so when we look at this gap between who God is and who we are, this gap is called guilt. And the only, there's only two, really two ways we can try to respond to that guilt. One, we can try to cope with it. Or two, we can go to God with it. And for a lot of us, myself included, we often, facing that guilt, we just try to cope. And the way we often try to cope is by running, hiding, or shifting blame on God or other people. That we may first want to run to all sorts of distractions, detractions, destructive things. Because if we just keep moving, we keep staying busy, then we'll hopefully be able to ignore those dark impulses within us. Or we may try to hide behind a a, a nice put-together facade or hide behind all our good deeds thinking that's good enough. Or we try to deal with it by casting blame on anyone or anything other than our own hearts. Man, it's how I was raised. And -and so-and-so made me do it. Because we think as long as I can blame it on somebody or something else, then I don't have to face my own sin. And these are ways that we try to cope with that guilt. And we've been geniuses at it. From the very first moment, we blame that spilled milk on the dog. Like, no one had to teach us this. But the problem is that none of these responses change us. Do they? So Daniel shows us a different way that does lead to change. And it's called repentance. First, because this word has a lot of baggage, let me clarify what repentance is not. Repentance is not self-hatred. Repentance is not wallowing in shame. Repentance is not self-punishment. Repentance is also not an attempt to do enough good deeds or pray enough prayers to make up for what we've done or left undone. 
All that stuff may appear religious, but all it really does is hyper-focus ourselves on ourselves and our own faults and try to fix ourselves and our own strength. Those who have tried that, does that work for you? doesn't for me either. But beginning with our eyes on him, genuine repentance realizes and admits that we have not given God the love and worship he rightfully deserves. It recognizes that we've had it all upside down in our lives. That we have made our own desires at the center of our lives instead of what our creator, our God desires for us. That instead of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done, we've sought our own will instead. Like an entitled kid, we try to tell the father what to do or we just ignore him altogether. But genuine repentance isn't just saying, God, I'm sorry, so that he doesn't punish us. But genuine repentance feels the remorse that we've robbed God of what rightfully belongs to him, which is our devotion. But after we recognize and admit that we've not given God what he rightfully deserves, then repentance turns us back to God so that we completely trust in his mercy. Now, listen, we, we may be good at trying to clean up the outside of ourselves, but we cannot fix that inside of ourselves, the sinful nature. Psalm 53.3 says, one thing we all have in common, we've all turned our backs on God. And if you try to stack our good deeds up against God's holiness, it's a joke. It's a joke. We don't cut it. But instead of leaving us in a state of hopelessness, Daniel prayed to God. And get this, he said, We do not make our request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. If you've got your own Bible, underline that verse. If you're looking on the Bible app, highlight that thing. Right? We do not make our request to you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. If God only allowed the righteous to come to him, there's no point in any of us trying to pray. Is there? No. Because that's not who we are. But coming to God doesn't depend on who we are, but who he is first. And that gives us all the hope in the world, guys. Because that doesn't mean where you are right now. If you are worn out, fed up, overwhelmed by guilt, it is his never-ending mercy that invites you to come to him again, lay it down at his feet, and receive his life. That we make no request to God because we are righteous, but because of his mercy. You guys tracking with me on that? And as we learn to pray in response to God's promises and who he is and trust completely in his mercy, what then? We see that Daniel prays in response to God, but how does God then respond to Daniel? is that when we pray in line with God's word in his heart, he can do greater things than we could ever imagine. So the core of Daniel's prayer was two things. He was asking God, God, forgive our sin as a people and restore us to Jerusalem. 
But while Daniel was praying, it says, right in the middle of it, all of a sudden things get wild. The angel named Gabriel shows up and speaks to him. Gabriel's the same one who showed up to Mary in the book of Luke. And he said to him, he says, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. Do you realize his prayers changed heaven itself? Do you realize when you pray, you have the power to do the same? And he said to him next, he said, for you are highly esteemed, which means highly loved or precious, which is exactly what God calls every single one of his children. And then what is, he, what is the word from God to Daniel? All right, lean in here with me on this part, okay? Gabriel continues. He said, 70 sevens, sevens represent a period of time, are decreed for your people and your holy city. He says, and I'm about to tell you what God's about to do, Gabriel said. He said, Daniel, you're asking for two things, to forgive the sin of the people and to restore them to the land. He said, but God's about to do six things instead. Greater than anything you can possibly imagine. He says, here's what God's about to do. One, finish transgression. Two, put an end to sin. Three, atone for wickedness. Four, bring in everlasting righteousness. Five, seal up, or which means authenticate the vision and prophecy. Six, to anoint the most holy place. Or I like the translation, anoint the most holy one. Daniel wants forgiveness of sin, but God says, oh man, my plan is way bigger than that. So how's that going down, God? What is this 77's business? Like, like what, what does all of this mean? How are you going to accomplish these things? Well, if I had time to get out my Bible nerd glasses, man, that would be, we would have a good time in here, okay? To actually dig into the symbolism, symbolism of numbers throughout the Bible. But, but for the sake of time, I got to keep it high level. I got to keep it high level. But one thing I do want to say is don't take this seven here as a literal seven days or years, but it's a number that throughout the Bible often symbolizes completion. And this, what I'm about to give you, is my interpretation of a very tricky passage. But again, try not to get so focused on the details or on the trees that we miss the beauty of the forest and the terrain of what God is doing. Got it? All right, so first, to describe what's to come, Gabriel says, out of those 77s, the first seven, he said, it's going to be a time when the word will go out and will restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, this very thing describes the very moment when the word went out from King Cyrus of Persia to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. And from that moment until about 445 BC, when Nehemiah works with the people to rebuild Jerusalem, that is that first seven sevens, in my opinion. Then, he says, after that seven sevens, there, is a six, there are 62 sevens. He says, after which, the anointed one, anointed one means Messiah, will come. And this describes the period from Nehemiah rebuilding Jerusalem to the birth of Jesus. which is, And Gabriel added to that, and he says, of this anointed one, he will be put to death and will have nothing. Why? Not just to forgive sin, 
but to place the weight of all our sin on him, atoning for wickedness. And that even though Daniel would not be alive to see it, God was answering his prayer through Jesus, the most holy one. And then, after, the, after that time period in the final seven, he says, a ruler will come who will destroy the city and sanctuary. Verse 27 adds that he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed and poured out on him. Now, this is probably the most confusing part. Uh, at least for me it was, and I find for a lot of commentators too. But there's a lot of disagreement about what this is. But I believe that it ultimately refers to the Roman emperors Titian and Hadrian, the first of whom would destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, and the second who would kick the Jews out of Jerusalem in 135 AD. Everybody take a breath. Okay, nobody. Take a breath, everybody. (laughs) Maybe I need to take a breath. See, but again, this is a lot of details, a lot of symbols, a lot of dates, a lot of wild stuff. But let's zoom back out. Let's get back to Daniel. The man who was praying to God, facing the seemingly impossible situation of, God, how are you ever going to forgive the sin of your people? How are you ever going to restore them to Jerusalem? But Daniel turned to God. He recognized who, what God said, who God was. He confessed their sin. And he appealed and trusted in God's mercy and grace. And how did God answer? By not just forgiving and restoring them to their city, But his grand plan in history led to that singular moment when the anointed one, the righteous Messiah, would willingly surrender himself to a dirty cross out of love for you, me, and the world. And it was at the cross that he said, it is finished. And he finished our transgression. And it was at the cross that he brought our guilt of our sin to the grave. And it was at the cross that it became the atoning sacrifice for all of our wickedness. And then when he rose from that grave, he ushered in everlasting righteousness as he shared his new life with us and a new covenant with those who had faith in him. And it was the Messiah who fulfilled all of the visions and prophecies he's long foretold. And it was the Messiah who was the most holy place that even after the physical temple was torn down, his body was the very temple of God, the dwelling of God with man. And for all those who believe and receive in him and what he has done for us through Christ, not only are you forgiven, but his new life dwells in you by his spirit. The very same power that rose Christ from the dead dwells in you. Yes. And so that mountain you're facing. Do you realize we have a God? And not, not, sometimes he strengthens us to climb it. Sometimes he may move it. But our prayers are powerful not because of us, but because we have a God of mercy. If you get nothing else I said today, get that. Because we have a God of mercy. And before we come to this table and we receive again this reminder of what God has done for us, I want to take a moment to pray. So if you could, just wherever you are, if you could just bow your head. I'm going I'm to lead us just through a prayer together to put into practice exactly what we just talked about. You don't have to pray out loud, right? This is just between you and God right now. 
But my first question is, what mountain are you facing? What seems impossible? What's wearing you out? Where might you feel like just giving up? And if you're not sure for yourself, maybe you can think of somebody else in a situation like that. But with that in mind, second, who does God say he is? Who is God that speaks directly to that very thing you or somebody you love is facing? We know that he's the almighty. He's the holy one. He's the God of all grace and mercy. He is Emmanuel, God with us. What about you? What's true about him from his word? I want to give, take just a moment right now. I'm going to just open space, a moment of silence for you just on your own just to thank God for who he is. Take a couple moments right now. And our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Next, what do you need to confess to him? Like where is it that your heart and mind, you realize, are out of alignment with him? Is there, are there areas where you are placing yourself and your own desires at the center of your life, or you're trying to control everything that's going on? What, what is it that you need to just lay down and trust to the mercy and the grace of God? I want you to take a couple moments of silence, just you and God, and give that to him too. God, we say your kingdom come, your will be done. Not ours, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, forgive us of our debts and our sin, our guilt against you. As we are learning to forgive those who hurt us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in this last part, now I just want you, whatever that mountain is, with your heart aligned with God, you, looking at Him, Him strengthening you, what seems impossible, I want you to take that to Him. And now take a last couple moments here. Because our prayers are powerful, not because of us, but because we have a God of mercy. Just lay down whatever that mountain is. Ask Him to give you strength or to move it. But ask him boldly because you know who he is. Lord, I thank you. I don't think Daniel could have ever comprehended 
He knew you were good, but I don't know that he knew just how good you were and that you weren't just coming to forgive, but to finish sin, to, be, be, to give your very self, your life, in order to atone for what we've done. And then get, have your very spirit within us too, that we we place our sin on you and you put your righteousness onto us. That we have your very life within us. God, what kind of God does this? But this is who you are. And I pray that that reality, God, that you make it all the more clear for us as we receive this meal again as a family today. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.